Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes. And uh, we have a little bit of an apology to make, I think. I think so. We have been declaring that we had finished all the books of the Bible. And we had one very devoted listener put together a list of the podcasts and point out that we are missing two books of the Bible. And we just want to come forward with this right now all at once. It's not like we missed one. And then a few weeks later, we found another one that we missed. And then another one was in our garage next to our Corvette that we missed. Uh, We're just going to come out with it all right now. We forgot 1 Timothy and Esther. And uh, we had them marked down. I think we had prepped Esther for sure. I thought we had recorded it, but then we checked our our logs and we hadn't. Uh, but we just skipped right over First Timothy. So we're here pleading repentance with another book overview. Yes, uh, actually, to be fair, though, I don't have First Timothy in my Bible. I found it too difficult to obey. <laughs> and so it's not in my Bible. I'm just kidding. Yes, we have overlooked these two and they're both gems. Well, and it's good to get, to come back and get to revisit these because I really had missed doing the Bible book overviews. And uh, <clears throat> this is interesting in so, in one way or another. First uh, Timothy is a difficult book. It's a very good book. But as you'll see in this mm-hmm. episode, there are a lot of difficult passages in First Timothy. It's overshadowed in some ways by Second Timothy, uh, which right. is like the little brother that totally overachieves and is everybody's favorite because it's Paul's last letter. It's very pastoral. It's much easier. There aren't as many controversial texts. Uh, I've been to and taught a million Bible studies on second Timothy, very few on first Timothy. Uh, so that's going to be fun to get to go through those texts. They're a little less familiar. And then secondly, Esther, if you listen to the podcast with John Mead, we're talking about the old Testament canon lists. Esther is one of those books that was, uh, for a long time, people wondered if it should be in or not, because God's not mentioned in uh, the book of Esther. So in a couple of weeks when we do that one, there'll be a lot of intrigue and talking about it. As you'll see, God is actually in all of Esther, and uh, it fits very well with the storyline of Scripture. But there are some very unique things about Esther. There's not another book quite like it in the Bible. And uh, these will be two fun ones to do. I agree. I think so. So 1 Timothy, uh, the first letter that we have from Paul to Timothy, I guess I'd ask the basics on this is uh, 2 Timothy sure sounds like Paul's about to be executed. So that means it's probably close to 68 AD, which is when Paul's probably killed by Nero before Nero himself dies. Uh, 1 Timothy doesn't seem to have the same tone. And so a lot of commentators put it a few years earlier uh, then Second Timothy, what's your view on that? When when would you situate us in Paul's life writing this? Well, if you go if you go to the end of the book of Acts, <clears throat> Paul is under house arrest in Rome, but people are coming freely to see him, and right. he's not in any danger at that point, or, or at least there's no sense that he's in any impending danger of being killed. In fact, the trial kind of looks like a sham, and a lot of people right. think that he got out of prison. Maybe went to Spain, was out for a little while, got rearrested, and then it was really bad in Rome. Some people think that he stayed in prison in Rome, and it just got worse in degrees of severity as the time went on. In some way or another, First Timothy reads like the first imprisonment in Rome, in the sense right. that there's no indication here in the letter that he thinks that he's going to be killed soon. It clearly is the end of his life and ministry in that he's passing on his 
legacy and his wisdom to Timothy, but it it's it's very different in tone from Second Timothy. It's also different in tone from a book like Philippians, for example. If you read Philippians, it seems a lot more like Paul's thinking about the end of his life than he is in First Timothy. Now, some of that could also be attributed to what is Paul trying to accomplish in this letter. This one isn't yes. nearly as personal as Second Timothy. This one is much more about the substance, which we're going to get into, of mm-hmm. being a leader in the church and what God has for his church. That's the main focus. And so maybe he knows he's going to write another more personal letter to Timothy later. We don't really know, but it's probably in his Roman imprisonment before Second Timothy, same time as Titus, most likely, and not super close to the end. So maybe mid-60s right. or early right. 60s even. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think that seems very likely for all the reasons you've said. Now, the, the first thing is this is addressed to Timothy. Timothy is a familiar figure if you're familiar with Paul's letters and, and in the story in Acts. But it pays to go back and say just who is Timothy? Why does he merit two letters in uh, the New Testament? We first meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16. He is probably a teenager at this point. He converts, and then he begins to travel with Paul and his companions. And from that moment on, he is maybe the most significant person among Paul's company of co-workers. He is listed as a co-author on six letters, and that would be 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He's mentioned as being with Paul at the end of Romans and 1 Corinthians. He's not mentioned as a co-author, but Timothy's here. You know, Timothy says hi uh, in Romans chapter 16 and in 1 Corinthians. And then you have two letters to Timothy in, in here. So all in all, you have almost every single one of Paul's letters Timothy is involved with. In fact, it's really just Titus and Galatians that he is not involved with, and, and Ephesians. So Titus, Ephesians, right. and and Galatians. And people stipulate as to why that's the case. It's almost certain that Timothy was with Paul when he wrote Galatians. But one of the other things you need to know about Timothy is he is from, most likely, Galatia. Now, there's right. an argument, if you want to go back to our Galatians podcast, there's an argument about where Galatia is. I tend to think that Galatia is the string of towns that Paul's traveling through in his missionary journey where he meets Timothy, which would be places like Lystra and Derby. Uh, so maybe Paul doesn't want to associate Timothy with that letter, or maybe Timothy doesn't want to co-write that letter. It's a very angry letter. We don't know. That's speculation. Uh, but it's a good insight into his background. That's his home area, most likely. And then, of course, Titus is to one of his other associates. And Ephesians is more of a form letter. You don't get any of the familial things that you get in the other letters. So With those three exceptions, Timothy is crucial to almost all of Paul's ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't do things on his own. In fact, Paul did what Jesus did, which was send out his disciples for certain tasks and certain things to do, and then they would come back. In fact, you see Timothy waiting in Berea after Paul is sent out from there and has to go to Athens. Uh, Then he comes and joins back up a couple months later. Timothy goes to several of the churches as Paul's ambassador. And where we find him now, he's been sent probably permanently or semi-permanently to the church in Mm -hmm. Ephesus. 
to be their pastor or their overseer, which we're going to talk in, in a minute about that. But he is the leader of the church at Ephesus, maybe a leader among a team of people there. Uh, which leads to another point. Ephesus is one of the most significant cities in the New Testament. And if you just think about the biblical uh, action that takes place in Ephesus, including this letter, Second Timothy, uh, you're teaching on Revelation right now, and have just talked about the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2. And that's the same church John is is said to have been a pastor in Ephesus. Of course, Paul right. has that really gripping farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Ephesus is a hugely important city. You've got Timothy, Paul's protege, who is serving there. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting to me is Timothy and Paul, from what we know, probably not very much alike. Tim, so some people, their protege is their clone. This is clearly uh -huh. not the case with Paul and Timothy. Um, judging on what we know in Acts, what we know in First and Second Timothy, how would you describe Timothy as a person, maybe as opposed to how you would describe Paul? A great question. I do think it's interesting that Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith, and but I don't think it's because, like, Paul is clearly type A. Yeah, he's a take charge kind of guy. He's a bold, he's knowledgeable, he's a seize the day kind of person. He's exactly who God needed to go, you know, break new ground. And you get the idea of Timothy, and you'll see in this letter as he speaks to Timothy, Timothy's younger, so he lacks that confidence. Timothy doesn't seem to have that kind of boldness. So what is it about Timothy that Paul is so drawn to? And I think that it is Timothy's deep and abiding loyalty to Christ. Timothy is, for all of his frailty and for all of his, I'm not a type A person like Paul, we never see an incident where Timothy is not off doing the Lord's business as he was told to do. And you can tell that it breaks Paul's heart to be separated from him. But at the same time, you can tell that he's really proud of Timothy for for keeping the faith and using the gifts that he's been given. So I think Timothy, I think of him as a little bit more like a Barnabas character, maybe not quite such a good stage presence, but just an unshakable faith and an obedience to God. So I don't know, how. what would you add to that? That's kind of how I read Timothy putting the clues together. Yeah, that sounds right to me. He's a He's younger. He's a little bit timid, doesn't maybe want to be the number one of the duo, like Paul clearly does. Mm -hmm. He's physically weak. We see in certain cases he's sick. One of the things you've got to wonder about Paul is just his physical constitution. Right. If you go through the amount of beatings and shipwrecks and starvations and being stoned, Paul had the constitution of a professional athlete in some ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was not only carried by the spirit. He he just was a very hardy person traveling all over the ancient world and all that that entailed. Where and then and then in first Timothy, you know, he's saying, Timothy, take take some wine for your stomach. You know, he's he's had he's got irritable bowel syndrome and he's yeah. having another flare up. Timothy is just a weaker person. And in some ways, the two of them as foils are able to point out in the other one how God can use a right. person like Timothy how God can use a person like Paul in a pastoral role, in a leadership role, in a speaking role. 
in a care role. And that's a real inspiration when you start to read this, that uh, it doesn't matter as much their personal differences as their core convictions, what God has called them to do, how God is going to sustain them in the work. That's There's a real powerful lesson in the character study of these two. And again, you can do the same thing in Titus. Titus clearly is more like Paul than he is like Timothy in the way that Paul talks to him. Uh, yet again, he's not exactly like Paul, but you see the different ways that God is using him as well. So I think that's an interesting background of this letter is uh, Timothy, you have to realize from the way that Paul talks to him, is not the same. He's he's God's own unique choice for the church in Ephesus at this time. And you're going to get Paul's counsel to him on how to be an effective leader there. I think so, too. And, you know, I can't help but think this is a little off subject. But when I read this, by this time, Paul has written the letter of Second Corinthians. And we all probably most of our hearers know that in Second Corinthians 12, Paul's, you know, pleading to God to take away a physical ailment, probably a physical ailment. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I, and then Paul, as you would expect, says, well, in that case, I'm going to boast in my weakness. But I do think that for type A people, like that, I think Paul got an appreciation for that God's power works through strong personalities and not so strong personalities. And it's always impressed me, Cole, sometimes how fierce a spirit can exist in how weak a little body. And so I think God kind of maybe uh, sanded off the edges of Paul a little bit and just made him appreciate other styles besides his own. Mm-hmm. The early church typically thought of the pastorals. That's what you have first and second Timothy and Titus sometimes referred to the pastoral epistles. They considered first Timothy as almost a manual for bishops, overseers, elders, Mm -hmm. how to go about leading and shepherding a church. I think if we take one step below that, we get to the core idea of first Timothy And I wanted you to talk about that. We were talking about it in our discussion uh, before this. What do you think is the unifying theme or the unifying idea of 1 Timothy? Yes, this book, if if you just read it, you realize it covers a lot of different topics. It starts and ends with sound doctrine, you know, warn those who are not teaching sound doctrine. It talks about elders, it talks about deacons, it talks about how to take care of widows, uh, poor, you know, those who are marginalized in your church. It talks about, I want everyone to be prayerful people. It's really got a lot of, uh, it covers a lot of church life. And there's this idea that you will see in chapter one, uh, verse four, it says, he says, he's telling Timothy, tell certain people not to teach false doctrine, you know, things that aren't true and not myths and genealogies and all kinds of speculations, but instead to focus on the stewardship of God's household, the household of God. And that's a that's a Greek word where we get our word economy. And sometimes you can translate it as the organization or the good working or the good order of God's people. And I think that may be the theme idea is that Paul's saying, look, you're in Ephesus and you're helping this community of people to know how to operate together. And if you think about it, everything in this letter is telling you how to organize 
God's household. If we indeed are all uh, sons and daughters of God, once we've come to Christ, we've been adopted into the family. What are the house rules? How does this family operate? And that's what the economy of God is, the household of God. And I like looking at this book that way. Paul's basically saying, now that you're in God's family, let me kind of tell you how God's family works. So I think that's a unifying idea to me in a book that seems to talk about a lot of different topics. What do you think? I love that idea. And I think that does get right to the heart of what Paul's doing in this book. That that word economy is all over Paul's letters uh, talking about the way that God runs his household. And Mm -hmm. like you said, what are the rules of the house? And what are the rules of the family? What are the qualities that this family is going to embody? That is really the unifying theme of this letter is, okay, you got an intro in chapter one, chapter two through the first verse of chapter six. This is where the chapters are really not in the right place. Uh, chapter six should should basically begin in in verse three or right before verse three in the second half of, of right. verse two. So, so you have from two one through six two A, let's say, is the uh-huh. main body of the letter. And this is basically the economy of God, how to order, how to steward the household of God. And you get worship, overseers and deacons, leaders, personal instructions, congregational care, all of that in here. And then you have a conclusion in chapter six where he gives some personal exhortations, some warnings, and then some encouragement to Timothy at the end. So it's a pretty easy outline, but you've got a bunch of different topics in here and a lot of diversity in what Paul's going to talk about, some of them being really controversial. Uh, if we're going to just take a step back from this, if if, for example, if you had grown up and you'd never been to a church at all, and you read First Timothy, and this is like, okay, this is what a church is, and this is a description of what should be happening, and then you went to most churches, most churches do not function very similarly to this. And I'm I'm not saying that as a huge indictment, in because we're, what we're going to talk about is these are just the sketches, these are the principles of what necessarily needs to be expanded on. But I do say with a little bit of a, of, of a barb in the sense that you really get the picture in 1 Timothy of the church existing like an extended family, all the way down right. to some very touchy uh, situations with people in the church uh, that they were right. dealing with. It, it actually looks a lot more like what priests in the Old Testament would have been dealing with. You know, people are coming uh-huh. to them for everything from, uh, you know, offerings and rituals all the way down to, hey, can you check this mole on my back? Because uh, Leviticus chapter 13 requires that I don't go into worship until you do. That just seems absolutely insane to us that you would mix all those personal areas with religious life. That is more what they were accustomed to. And again, I'm not calling us back to that exactly as much as I'm saying you have to know that when you read this. This is very much more like what's going to happen in a home than what's going to happen in in a big church that you'd go to today. And that's going to help explain some of these really difficult, touchy passages. So I I just say that as a preface. I agree. And I I do think that's true. And one of the key takeaways is what it's saying, and you'll see this throughout the New Testament, is Christian life is more like a family 
than an institution. In an institution, for example, you might have the separation of church and state, or you might have this institution is not for profit, or this one's for profit. In a family, nothing is off limits. Right. God's God's gospel invades every area of our life, the social, the political, the religious, the relational. And I do like that because that's the kingdom of God is more like a family than it is than an institution. Right. And and families are messy and there's and, and they're they are personal messy. and they're invasive. And yeah. that's exactly what you see in this book. Uh, exactly. So the first section of this uh, order in the church, economy in the church section, is giving regulations on worship for the most part. Uh, Paul says, first of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. Rulers, this is good, it's pleasing. There's one God, he gives a great doctrinal statement here, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Um, I was appointed to be a preacher of this. And then he says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we get into a very difficult text. In fact, this some people think this is one of the more difficult texts in the New Testament. Uh, certainly right. when it comes to gender in the church, roles in the church, this is one of the most difficult texts. Women should adorn themselves in a respectable apparel with modesty, self-control. This is very similar to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, as as you can tell, this is a this is a very thorny passage for several different reasons, and uh, one of the difficulties of this text is how it has been interpreted in certain contexts, and so there's right. a lot brought into this passage that isn't in this text, and that's important. There's there, and we want to acknowledge that it reminds me of the of the episodes we did on deconstruction. We were talking about there's a fine line between deconstructing in a way. That essentially is an excuse to just become what you really want it to be, more progressive, right. fitting in with a different crowd, not believing, apologetics for certain things that you want to believe that you know conflict with the Bible. Not all those things are conscious, but that's somehow that some somehow people construe their deconstruction sometimes that way. There are others, though, who deconstruct because they have really experienced things that are not true, man-made, uh, man-focused commands in the church, dysfunction. Right abusive leadership, and they are deconstructing from things that are not true. That's good. That's actually a good thing. You want to get rid of that so that you can really see what God's truth is. And there's probably a little bit of both going on in this passage. There are people who have interpreted this passage to mean, you know, women cannot pray, they cannot talk, they cannot do anything in the church. Uh, There are certainly areas where this has been a cover-up for really oppressive and ugly behavior towards women in the church. That would be something that would be great to deconstruct from in this passage. Again, we talk about right. in those episodes. I don't typically call that deconstruction because deconstruction now has such uh, an air to it. I would just call that right. like maturity and rejecting yeah. things that are wrong and sifting through our experience to align it with the word of God. Those are certainly things that should be rejected. I don't think that's a proper uh um, I don't think that's a proper interpretation of this passage. Then, then there are those who just basically say, well, in our culture, if you say that one person can do something and another person can't do something, you're a bigot. 
And uh, right. any kind of difference has to have injustice. Well, the Bible doesn't work in those categories. There are all kinds of things in the Bible where uh, God doesn't operate by our definition of fairness, if by fairness we mean every single person should be treated exactly the same way, should be able to do all the exact same things. That just isn't the way the Bible works. Different people have different spiritual gifts. Different people play different roles. Different people are put in situations by God to do different things. And we see in in 1 Timothy, certain people in the church are appointed to certain roles, and those things come with certain activities that they do that other people don't. And uh, in some way or another, Every person is in some situation where they're not exactly the same in the church as everyone else. It's the old, can the eye say to the hand, uh, I don't need you? Or can one part of the body look at the other and say, if I'm not that part, then I really must not be important. So I think there's an element of that in this passage that we should probably reject out of hand. Um, If you bring 2023 uh, kind of progressive morality to this passage, it is going to be very difficult to make heads or tails of this because that is not the worldview assumption that's that's uh, underlying this. I thought maybe it'd be interesting to throw out a couple of ways that people do interpret this passage um, and then jump in with what what you think uh, we need to add here. Some people read this as a, as a specific prohibition in this setting. So there's a problem in the church at Ephesus that has to do with women who are in some way uh, assuming a role that they shouldn't. There's things that they're saying that they shouldn't be saying. And so Paul is specifically pointing to this instance and saying, hey, uh, for this moment right now, do not permit the women to teach or exercise authority. That's one way to do it. People make the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, where you right. have a very similar uh, set of teaching. Uh, some some people read this more than, hey, women should be silent in church. That doesn't really square with the rest of the New Testament you see in 1 Corinthians. Women are praying, they're prophesying, they're reading scripture, they're giving words of knowledge. Uh, a lot of people read this as a very specific role, which we're going to get into in chapter 3, which is the role that only the elders are supposed to have, which is that authoritative teaching and exhorting mm-hmm. in the church. Uh, and within that position, some people would consider that to be preaching. Some people would just consider that to be the office of elder. But that's another position is, no, this is not just specific to these certain women. This is, But it is specific to a very uh, de- well-defined set of jobs, teaching and having authority that come together in the role of elder. Others take it to mean they shouldn't have inappropriate or abusive kinds of authority, over men. This actually has nothing to do with whether they're women or men. It's just no one should have uh, an oppressive or an abusive authority over men. And this goes into what people think this word actually means in the Greek. Right. So I'll give you an example. In the ESV, this says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In the NIV, which which the most popular version of the NIV came out in 1984, it said, I do not permit them to have authority, which is that this neutral view. This is where you would maybe take right. one of the first positions we talked right. about. But in the revamp uh, about 10 years ago, they changed it. If you're reading an NIV now, it says, I do not permit them to assume authority over a man, which reflects a little bit of a different view, which is they are taking something 
that's not theirs, or they're exercising authority in a way that's not healthy authority. And so this third view would be people who are saying, no, it's 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 not the matter of specific or general. It's not the matter of women or men in certain roles in the church. It's a manner of what kind of authority are these people exerting that Paul is now right. speaking to. Uh, what would you add to that in this passage? Well, uh, that, that you've done a great job outlining it, and you can tell the difficulties come as you begin to really microscopically parse some of these things. I, I would say two observations. Number one, this passage is forbidding something. No matter who you are, something is being forbidden here. And so I would start from there. Because anything that tries to make an apologetic that says there's really nothing being forbidden here is not being true to the passage. The other thing I would say is in both Corinth and Ephesus, you're talking about largely pagans becoming Christians, uh, Gentiles. But Gentile does the wrong thing. Think pagan. Think coming from radically different religious culture. They would sometimes worship in ecstatic ways with sexual immorality. I mean, their experience of religion is radically different. So there's a lot of room here for them to be forbidding something that is uh, pretty extreme. And so the behavior here could be very well outside what we would think of as church-going Christians today. So I do think this is something that deserves a drill down, and maybe it would be great in one of our difficult passages lessons. So, But I would say that something's being forbidden here, and secondly, don't underestimate how different the pagan practices were, which which lends a little bit of credence to the idea that perhaps this has to do with certain practices that were going on in that place and that may or may not transfer particularly well to American churches in 2023. It may not be talking about quite the same thing. Yeah, I think this would be a good one if somebody wants to send this in for our difficult text, because I don't even <laughs> think this is the most difficult part of this text. I think this part is actually pretty straightforward uh, in what it's applying to. I think the most difficult part in this text is Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, that's a difficult text. And that maybe is the we'll, most we'll drill part. down on that. Um, but yeah, it does remind yeah. me, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, because sometimes you want to wave your hand over these passages and just pretend like they don't exist. Uh, but, you, but to take the Bible seriously, it, it, it is prohibiting something. Our job is just to figure out what it's prohibiting what? in what context. Right. It's like one pastor that I, that I've heard read a passage like this and said, "And all God's people uh, wish for an original Greek word study, because oftentimes <laughs> <laughs> what happens is, oh, you, you know, well, if you know the Greek well enough, it it actually verse twelve doesn't say I do not permit a woman to teach. It says I do permit a woman to teach, and all of a sudden, all of our you know wrinkles are ironed out yeah. by an original Greek word study. Uh, at the end of the day, like you said, we need to take this seriously. We need to figure out what is being permitted." We need to figure out things that maybe have not been permitted that are outside of the scope of this. And then we need to drill down mm -hmm. and say, you know what? This is unpopular, but this is what the Bible teaches, and we're going to follow it because we want to do what God says to do, not what everybody else says to do, especially because this is his church. This is his household. So he gets to make right. the rules. And uh, that that probably be the guiding principle that I would recommend on a difficult text like this is put aside everything else for a moment. Just try to figure out what you think this text is saying, then right. stomach the difficulty of applying it afterwards, figure out the best way uh, to do this in our modern context afterwards. You know, we get something that's kind of similar in the next 
set of passages, which is the qualifications for overseers and deacons. One of the things I'll point out on this one is uh, when you look at these two offices, the Bible does specify two offices, mostly here in in First Timothy. This is a, this is the longest mm-hmm. section we have about these two offices. In fact, it's the only time in the New Testament that we get anything specifically about deacons. Now, we see in Acts chapter 6, maybe kind of a proto-deacon role. I think that's what right. that is, uh, but they're not right. called that. And then when you when you get to Titus, you don't get the same delineation between the, the offices. You really only get uh, an echo of what Paul says here about overseers. Now, the wording here is important, too. So people are saying overseers and deacons. I mean, elders and deacons are what we typically refer to. Elder, overseer, pastor, I would argue, are all the same role in the New Testament. In fact, you never see them specified to be different than one of of those other two words. Uh, But you never see them come out and say, hey, guys, just for clarification's sake, episkopos and presbyteros and poemos are all the same were they're they're all referring to the same office. That's an inference that you have to make by the way that they're done. Here, overseer, uh, you might have a little note in your Bible or bishop or episkopos, but don't think Catholic bishop in the sense of this global hierarchical structure that right. came later. That's not what is meant here, and that's not what was practiced early in the church. Of course, it did develop later. Uh, but this is this is the kind of person who's exercising a ruling authority in the church. This is probably what Timothy was. There's arguments as to whether there were a bunch of elders and a bishop, a pastor who was over them or regionally over them, or was there a team of elders and there was a bishop under them, like Timothy, maybe a, a first among equals or who's working for this group. Uh, we don't really know. What we do have is a sketch of a plurality of leadership at the highest level in a local church. And you can call those people overseers. Elders is typically what we call them today. That's what it says in Titus. Uh, I, I left you in Crete to appoint elders in every town, elders for the local churches. Paul calls the Ephesian elders together in Acts chapter 20. That's probably what we have here. And then we have a separate role that functions differently for deacons, which is described in verses 8 through 13. And these are sketches of the kind of people you're going to want in church leadership. Well, and I think that's the key is sometimes we argue about the church polity or the church structure. Should I have elders and deacons? Should I have deacons only and a senior pastor? And so I think, though, that sometimes that's missing the point. We do have overseers slash elders and deacons here. What's probably more important is what you've just led us into, what are the kind of people that fill these roles? I would hate for us to get focused on structure and miss the character qualities. And by the way, I think as we read this list, uh, if you want to read that for us, notice how few of these things are giftings and more of these have to do with character qualities, qualities that are the spirit develops in us through the faith. But I think the key here is probably the uh, qualifications, the kind of people you're looking for. Yeah, so I'll I'll read these qualities for uh, an overseer, starting in chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, his own household well. This is an insight back to that theme that we're talking about. Uh, uh-huh. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may come become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So if you look, there's a long list of character qualities. There's only two descriptions of of abilities or roles one able to teach two managing the household of god those are the only two things that we get that are doing words instead the rest of them are kind of being words this is the kind of person you're looking for which corresponds to other places in the bible like acts chapter 6 where they're looking for people who are full of the spirit and wisdom Mm -hmm. that are god honoring that are righteous that are well thought of that's the kind of person you want in an elder, somebody who's a mature Christian. In fact, I think D.A. Carson in his book on church leadership, he says, elders are Christians who do uh, extraordinarily what all Christians are called to do ordinarily. This is the life that every Christian really should be looking at. These aren't super Christians. They're just mature, consistent, time-tested in these basic areas of Christian character. Um, and because of that, we can look at other things for qualifications for elders. Uh, of course, we want to look at First Peter chapter 5, which is a description of elders. We want to look at Titus chapter 1, which is a description of elders. We also want to look at places like the fruit of the Spirit. Do elders have right. the fruit of the Spirit manifested in their life? Because that's what every mature Christian should have. Um, so mm-hmm. this is very much a character uh, description. We don't even get a description of what they're supposed to be doing. We know that they're supposed right. to be caring for shepherding the house of God, leading, uh, teaching, giving authority by implication. But in this list, we just get what their character should be. Exactly. And and that's really a good point you make. You're not told specifically what they're to do. As a matter of fact, you can imagine that changing radically through history. But one thing you can't imagine changing are these character traits that have to be consistent throughout history. I think it's there's such great wisdom here. And on God's part, obviously, to say, I want this character in the uh, leaders in my church and the way that leadership plays out. And, you know, whether you're going to have a director of of small groups or you're going to have a church business administrator, you know, what whatever the structure of the church may be, this is the kind of people I want managing the church, the household. Absolutely. Yeah, we won't go into the deacons, but if you read through that list, it's very similar there are some wrinkles in there as to what the deacons are supposed to be doing that's different than the elders. Uh, there's also a very interesting little, uh, maybe a little puzzle in the text uh, in verse 11, whether it says their wives or the women or the women deacons. This is an interesting question that we don't have time to go into now. But actually, if you want to dive into this, just go to the, our website at Carlton Landing Community Church, because we work through this question in terms of what we would get, what we were going to be doing for deacons, trying to figure out what is the most faithful biblical way in our context. Again, these are not exhaustive. They're, they're frameworks that then you have to put into practice. Mm-hmm. So what is, on the one hand, biblically faithful? And on the second hand, what what works in our context under those guidelines? And we have a description and a whole white paper. There's like eight pages of research and discussion on that 
uh, if you just go to carlandlanding.church uh, to get one take on that. And that'll point you to some other uh, resources as well. Right. As well reasoned and well researched. If you keep going, Paul's going to give some general instructions to Timothy, one of which is to keep close watch on yourself and your own teaching. Again, Timothy being one of these overseers, most likely, uh, he Mm -hmm. is supposed to be living up to these qualities. And then in chapter four, he gives him some practical instructions. Hey, people are going to leave your church and that's okay. God is maybe doing something in them and and he's going to bring them back. Or uh, maybe they just aren't supposed to be there. Maybe they're not Christians. Uh, Some of the nitty gritty, difficult parts of working together in a family uh, with, with the people of God. Then you get this really famous passage, which we'll, we'll come back to here at the end. Do not uh, let anyone look down on you because of your youth charges them again, live up to the example that you've been called to, um, and set a good example for the people who are in the church. The last section of the main body of this letter, I think is one of the most interesting. It's about widows. So you have from chapter five, verse three, all the way down to verse 16, which gives very specific rules for widows who should be considered a certain kind of widow in the church, what you should do for them, how you take care of them. This brings us back to Acts chapter six, which we referred to several times because it is the other passage that informs us on how the family functions of the church were being done. Essentially, mm-hmm. the church was doing benevolence for certain people, widows. So if you had a woman, again, you have to think back in their culture, men were a lot older when they married than women were. So you had a lot of widows because the men would sometimes be 10, 15 years older than the mm-hmm. women. You have a lot of widows, and they are providing for these widows out of the offerings of the church. Like I said, they're they're doing benevolence for widows, but they don't count everyone in the benevolence. And this is where in Acts chapter six, you have certain widows that are being overlooked because of their ethnic identity. Here you have certain widows that are being put into a different category because they are either young enough to continue to work and to continue to engage with their families, maybe to remarry. But then you also have the burden on the individual households to take care of their family members. And to right. the burden is not on the church, it's on them. The church is going to take care of the people that have nobody to take care of them. And then the households are called upon to take care of the widows uh, that they can take care of. And you can imagine this led to many awkward conversations, I'm sure, among the church of saying, right. well, you know what? We do give benevolence to these widows, but in this family situation, by the guidelines we have, we think that your family should be playing this role. Can you imagine having that conversation now in the church? That would be really awkward. I don't know of any church, actually, that's doing this kind of thing with widows in the church. I agree. But I think that we should read this with some seriousness. And, you, of course, you can generalize this into the criticism of the welfare state and so forth. And I think that's beyond what it's intended to be. But fundamentally, this is the household of God 
trying to care for people who cannot care for themselves and trying to motivate those who will not care for themselves. Paul actually has even harsher things to say in other places, as you know, about idlers who won't work. And so this is right down in the nitty gritty, dirty, everyday, tough uh, part of life. And I think Probably if you read the scripture, you can see the heart of this coming through. And that is let families care for their families. Let widows who can remarry or work do so. And let those who simply have no one to take care of them, then we are their family. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a great prescription, but I'm sure it wasn't always easy to do. Yeah, but that's that's kind of the point is everyone is going to be cared for, but they're going to be cared for wisely. And right. I think this is a principle that we need to be reminded of sometimes is all the money that a church has, unless you have some kind of independent revenue stream, which most churches don't, is given to the church, tithes and offerings and donations, which are given to the church. And it's interesting that even in the first century, <clears throat> they took very seriously how the money was going to be spent in the church. Right. It's going to be spent in godly ways. It's going to be spent in efficient ways. It's going to be spent wisely. We're going to make the most and be good stewards of what we've been given as a church. And so you read through this passage, you can't help but think of the importance with which they handled tithe dollars and donations and giving and how they mm -hmm. were going to turn that back around and use those things in the kingdom. And that's another important principle for us today. It may not be that we're parsing out which widows to help and not. Most churches have some kind of benevolence program uh, that needs to be done wisely and shrewdly. Uh, but anything that the church spends money on, you have to come back to these principles and say, man, are we are we giving enough thought and wisdom to this? Uh, and I'm not the person that thinks that you know people should show up at the annual church business meeting and want to account for every dollar because you also need to trust your leaders. But especially for church leaders, uh, just look at the seriousness with which they took this, the, the the willingness to have difficult conversations, uh, all because they wanted to be good stewards of God's household and God's people. That's an incredible principle for the church today. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. So you get a little bit on elders after this. Uh, let elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor. This is where you get a division in the Presbyterian church. <clears throat> uh, again, this is the word presbyteros and not the word that you see in chapter three. That's one of the reasons that people think these are really referring to the same role um, right? where you get a division in the Presbyterian church between a teaching elder and a ruling elder. Those are the two things that are described in chapter in uh, chapter three. And here you have one of them singled out elders who rule well, ruling elders. And so if you go onto a website of a PCA church, for example, you'll see usually under their elders, teaching elder or ruling elder. And uh, this is where, among other places, that division comes from. Uh, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, do not be quick to lay hands on people. Uh, do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Here you get Paul's little advice to Timothy. No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, of course, Baptists typically take this as a specific command, and Presbyterians and Episcopalians typically take this as a general command. Uh, there is a little <laughs> bit of difference in how this is applied. But these are just very practical things for the church, uh, bond servants and their masters. And then you get this final section of Paul uh, just speaking to Timothy 
about what's going to happen. False teachers are going to arise. You arrive back at the same theme that the that the uh, that the book began with: correct false doctrine, help people to understand the mystery of the faith, guard the good mm-hmm. deposit which has been entrusted to you, Timothy. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For my professing it, people have swerved from the faith. That's how he ends the letter, back on this theme of uh, right doctrine, right belief, defending the faith. Um, I always like to go back and just hit a couple of the little highlights in these books. Uh, And on this one, there's several gems in here. What sticks out to you or what would you like to revisit uh, passage-wise in 1 Timothy? Well, one of the ones is uh, ending in chapter six that I don't know if this has happened to those who are listening to us, but it's happened to me before. But in chapter six, verse 17, he's capping off kind of what's really important. Uh, He talks earlier, godliness with contentment is great gain. We didn't bring anything into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. But in verse 17, he says this of chapter six, as for the rich in this present age, meaning those who have money or possessions in this world, charge them, Timothy, be sure they know not to be arrogant or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And I imagine most of us read that and say, oh, okay, this is talking to the rich people. But honestly, I think, relatively speaking, every one of us in America who reads this are it's speaking to us because we are relatively speaking rich. And I, I think this is one that I, uh, you know, we need to personalize is be careful not to be arrogant or to put my hope on the uncertainty of riches, but make sure that I'm relying on God who supplies all of our needs and provides everything to enjoy. So I, whenever I read first Timothy, that's one that I invariably stop on that verse and make sure I don't, make the mistake of thinking that's talking about someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't forget that this is the, this is the place where we find in chapter six, verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Very famous quoted passages right. in this, in this same letter. One of the things that sticks out to me, this is a little bit of a more technical point. Uh, but in chapter five, verse 18, Paul says for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, but it's also a quote of Luke 10, verse 7. And the interesting thing about this is he's referring to both of them, placing them next to each other as scripture. Now, I'm not saying that Paul had a copy of the gospel of Luke and was quoting it directly, but if you think about it, Luke was Paul's travel companion, and they must have talked about this. They taught about it. They were privy to some of the same uh information and eyewitness accounts of Jesus. It's possible, I guess, in some way that Paul maybe knew what Luke was going to write in his gospel. Maybe he was working on it at this point. Uh, But I think it's probably more likely that they just had this shared understanding of these teachings of Jesus. And so Paul here is referring to Deuteronomy and the teachings of Jesus, both as scripture next to each other. This is happening very early. This is in the 60s. So you have from very early on Jesus' words be, being considered on the same level as Moses's, as Scripture. Then what's interesting is in Second Peter, you have Peter saying, you know, Paul writes all these things that are very difficult to understand, and he calls Paul's writing Scripture. 
So you see, the Bible right. itself has this internal witness as to what is considered scripture and what is not. That's and that's a very interesting point that you really only see here in First Timothy. Another that's passage. A really, go ahead. Uh, before you leave that one, I think that's a really astute observation, Cole. And I would s- add one thing: when we use the word scripture. And so now Paul's writing is referred to as scripture. Jesus' sayings are referred to as scripture. I think what we mean, what is scripture? Scripture is the authoritative words that come from or are inspired by God. The difference between scripture and any other writings is scripture is authoritative. And so the recognition that the words of Jesus and then the inspired words of his apostles are authoritative is a profound uh, observation. Mm-hmm. The most famous passage maybe in First Timothy is in chapter 4, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example in speech and conduct in love and faith in purity until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So this, a lot of people think this is actually referring back to Acts chapter 20, with the Ephesian elders, that maybe when Paul is mm-hmm. leaving, Timothy is commissioned. But at some point, uh, they have this meeting. And this is a real insight into the meetings they were having, the way the leadership uh, was construed. I think there's a lot we could talk about here. But but the part that most people think of is, do not let anyone look down on you because you were young. This is like every camp, Christian camp verse for kids. Again, Timothy's not that young, but he's not as old as Paul, and he's not an mm-hmm. quote-unquote elder, as we might think of it in their culture. But Paul says, nevertheless, God has put you there to set an example and to set the standard in your life and your love and your conduct and your faith, purity. You should set a high bar for the people around you that they may be able to imitate. And that's one of the really powerful exhortations that Paul gives to Timothy. I I agree. And, you know, it's one of the things, too, that's encouraging, I think, to younger people, relatively speaking, is that you you pursue spiritual maturity, but you don't have to wait until you've lived the 40 years or 50 years of the Christian life. Of course, those people deserve to be respected and heard, but you don't have to live that long before you can be an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. And I think this is very encouraging to younger people who are Christians is that you too are leaders. You just may not think of yourself that way. So as you said, set the high bar and be faithful to the, to what you've been called. I'll end here with my favorite passage in first Timothy. And one of my favorites in the whole new Testament is in chapter one, verse 15, Paul's talking about thanking Christ who judged him faithful to call him into his service. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then in 15, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience is an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just such a powerful word from Paul. You forget that Paul is a towering apostle. He is someone who says, hey, look at my life and do that. But part of it is because he could look back at his life and think, 
I am the chief of sinners. In fact, the mm-hmm. worst of the worst of sinners. And he says, but he received mercy for this reason, that he might be an, an example of God's patience over right. a lifetime of transformation to anybody who might believe. I just love that picture of Paul saying, you know what? My life serves the purpose that nobody can look at me and then say, well, God must not want me or my, I might not be good enough for God, or I just am not cut out for this. He says, you know what? My life is a trophy of God's grace to be put up and say, nobody is too far or nobody has outrun God's patience. And then I just love the, the, doxology that Paul breaks into. He does this all over the place. I think he maybe just gets so carried away. He gets so excited and moved by the grace of God that he turns from addressing Timothy or, you know, addressing uh, this letter to addressing God himself and praising him to the King of ages. And then he lists out his descriptions and says to him, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he gets right back to the letter to this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, and goes on with it. I, I love that about Paul. This is such a great insight into his personality. It's not a bad thing if every now and then in our lives, just like in Paul's, we just break out in praise for the unbelievable favor that God has shown us. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.